Morrison missing for women and elders, Putin's war, the flood disasters, and good news about Guinness. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, and joining me is the great, the glorious, the author of best-selling book, best-selling book tour, and soon-to-be <laughs> best-selling audio book, Q&On and, and On, the wonderful Van Batam. How are you, Van? Hello, Ben. Um, it's not quite a sold-out book tour. I've only been to Canberra. It sold out, did it, it not? Did, there it did. It did. 300 people came to hear me and Andrew Lee natter about the relationship of conspiracy movements to rises in global extremism and the the movement for authoritarianism against democracy. It was awesome. I just want to say hi to all the Week on Wednesday listeners who came up to me to get their book signed and the lovely man who brought me jam, which was just like awesome please i mean we're very pro jam in this house um so that was i'm i'm in love with the people of canberra on that basis so that was fantastic and of course i'm off to adelaide this weekend and you will be around because you're the world's most supportive partner um at adelaide writers week i'm doing sessions on the saturday and um it will be great to see people there if you are in adelaide check it out and the audiobook of QAnon and On that literally hundreds of people wrote to me demanding to get is being released on the 11th of March. It's available for pre-order now. You can have a look at Audible or wherever you buy your audiobooks and it will be there for pre-sale. And that's really exciting. It's so and exciting. Yeah, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's a bit of a curse to find yourself having spent a year in conspiracist communities that were talking about all these, you know, anti-vax, anti-lockdown things and see just how quickly they have pivoted to a pro-Putin position. What an enormous coincidence that you can probably uh, get some um, context and justification for if you read QAnon and on. Yes, we'd encourage everyone to read the book. Yes. Uh, not just because Van wrote it but because it's also an excellent primer and backgrounder and also a really good read about what's going on in Western democracy. And if you're looking at the situation in Ukraine going, how have we found ourselves in this position? Having read that book, you might have a better understanding. And of course, later on in this episode, we'll talk about Putin's war in Ukraine and some of the some of the things that have gone on to create it. But first, Van, uh, I want to talk about something else that's been a year in the making. I know QAnon and on took a year to do. You loved it. You loved every minute of me having <laughs> nightmares about conspiracy theorists who believed in lizard people. You loved it. Well, I think since then, of course, it's been a year since the Aged Care Royal Commission report was handed down. And the the situation in aged care in Australia, we've talked about it before. We're going to keep talking about it. Obviously, it's something that impacts hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people work in the sector. Hundreds of thousands of people need care from the sector, and of course, the, by extrapolation, millions of Australians are affected because they have family members in the sector, either in care or working there. Uh, and we know that in the first two months of 2020 alone, 700 people, 700 of our elders, died in aged care facilities in this country. Now. The, in the 12 months since the Aged Care Royal Commission was handed down, here's some of the things that people have said. The response should have been better. That was the view from the uh, Aged Care Royal Commissioner, Linnell Briggs. An abject failure, according to Professor Joseph Ibrahim, 
who also said, I'd rather be dead than go to a nursing home. Oh. This is this is like pretty strong language. I mean, the Morrison government has increased the investment in aged care to a level now that equates to an extra $27 a day for each of the 190,000 of our elders who are in care. And I think we should put that into the context of the average daily cost for someone and their family to be in aged care is $200 a day. That's what people on average are paying. And the government has has essentially given a sort of, what is that, a 10, 11, 12, 13% top up. It's quite disgraceful, quite disgraceful. Some of that money was supposed to go into improving nutrition because, of course, you'll remember that it came out they were only spending $6 a day on food for people in uh, aged care facilities. And it was disgraceful. And who would eat that food? Unless you were so physically frail that you could not leave, you like you would not eat that food. And that's really what they were counting on, yeah. that elders who were physically frail, who could not leave aged care, would be forced to eat that food or eat nothing. And I just that's structural cruelty, by the way. Let's not pretend it's anything apart from structuralised cruelty. And half a billion dollars was supposed to go into improving the nutritional standards for people in aged care, right? But Ben, are we letting the private sector do it? Yeah. Oh, wow. I wonder why it's all going completely wrong. Well, Richard Colbeck, our, our cricket-loving friend. Uh, he does love cricket. That's true. He loves cricket a lot more than he loves elderly Australians. Who's now accused everybody of bullying him because he went to the cricket instead of dealing with the aged care crisis. I mean, that's a true victim. I mean, ask anybody in Ukraine at the moment what victimhood looks like, and I'm sure all of them, as one people under one flag, would definitely say it looks like people criticising an aged care minister for going to the cricket when he should have been fronting questions about aged care at the Senate. For three days on VIP tickets, it's must be it must be tough to be Richard Colbeck. I just can't imagine impression on that scale, can you? Well, I mean it's so bad that Richard Colbeck is unable to tell people whether the extra half a billion dollars has improved nutritional outcomes or even has gone into increasing the average daily investment in nutrition for our elders. He's unable to tell people. He says he doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't have. He thinks it probably has, but he isn't a hundred percent sure and doesn't have a way of telling. Look, I feel we need to contextualise this by by recognising that Richard Colbeck does, of course, suffer the condition of being an incompetent sook. So it it has been really hard for him these months. And Richard, thoughts and prayers, buddy. <laughs> it's it's it is pretty mind blowing. Like. Maggie Beer, who people might know is sort of, you know, TV chef and um, food entrepreneur and, you know, Maggie's Kitchen in schools is a program designed to encourage healthy eating, all that sort of stuff. She's She was in the, in the media recently saying, look, I can make it cheap. You can make it 14 bucks a day to feed people, but you've got to have a veggie garden in every facility and you've got to have a properly qualified cook. If you've got those two things then you can make it for $14 a day and I'll give you plans to make sure our elders are not being subjected to systemic cruelty. And, of course, the government just doesn't know how to respond to this idea that someone would would provide them a framework that doesn't involve them making a huge amount of profit at the expense of people in care. Or the arbitrage of one of their donors, of course. Of course.
And of course, some of the recommendations. That means nothing, money for nothing, by the way, everybody, arbitrage. That's right. And in many cases, it's illegally obtained, by the way. So a lot of the Aged Care Royal Commission recommendations just haven't been implemented, right? So there's still no requirement to have a trained nurse 24 hours a day in aged care facilities. The, there's no plan. Just poke them with a stick into the corner. Poke them with a stick. If they're a bit sick, poke them with a stick. Well, I know we've experienced as a family, and I'm sure many others have as well, that a loved one in care has had a medical situation arise in the middle of the night, as they often do, and then they've called family members to say this is a problem. Uh, they've had a fall, something's happened, and there's no nurse in the facility, there's no one else for them to call. So the family have to find a solution and usually it's calling an ambulance. So there's a whole bunch of systemic pressures they could put on there, right? Normally it's a woman in the family who gets the call. Then there's an ambulance that has to be called as well, which is another a systemic problem for our health system. And then, of course, they go to emergency. Well, it may not be an emergency. We don't know. Whereas if there was a nurse in the facility, 24 hours a day. Who could make an assessment and triage the situation. Yeah, that would take lots of pressure off us. But that's not how the system works, Ben. No. There's no part of the aged care system, like, and this is what the Royal Commission revealed. Like, this is not, it's hilarious it's called an aged care system because there's nothing systemic about it. This is not, this is not a, a series of interconnected relationships that are about care. It's literally a, a, it, the the policy framework is of a profit-making storage facility for elderly Australians. That's what it is. It's not about health and it's not about dignity in in elder life. It's about none of those things. And the Morrison government doesn't care. Otherwise, Richard Colbeck wouldn't be going to the cricket. He would be turning up to answer questions. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, and I don't want to be too crazy here, actually acting on the recommendations of the very expensive Royal Commission that was instituted in order to identify what the system failures were. But, I mean, it's across the aged care system. It's not just the the aged care homes that are the problem. Mm -hmm. My mother is in palliative care at the moment. It's the most horrific and awful experience I've ever gone through. I love my mother. You love my mother. I'm sure anybody who's ever seen her cute little face on the internet adores my mother as well. And we have been trying to negotiate the my aged care services mm. and all of which is privatized outsourced there's no there's no effective coordination there is no one person responsible for determining what my mother's needs are you do an assessment on the phone and then independent contractors compete to sort of get the contract of your care a procession of people come in and out of your house none of them speak to one another they don't even work for the same organization and you throw up your hands and go what is the point seriously what is the point of this piecemeal and this is the alternative to the to residential aged care yeah. is it's supposed to be about keeping people in the home which is what we're trying to do with my mother for as long as possible to meet her needs to meet our needs so we can be happy and I don't want her to go into an aged care home absolutely not given all the things we know about them but the support for an alternative is a piecemeal disaster as well. And everybody who not, who works in the sector who takes it seriously, who doesn't just see it as a return on, you know, private equity investment, they know this as well. I speak to these people and I go, this is not adequate, comprehensive, integrated. This is ridiculous. Like it's a menu of services 
for my mother, like, and no way of determining any kind of comprehensive plan about what that care should look like. And they're like, we know, we know, we all know. And and this is the thing. The workers know there are huge (sighs) problems here, right? Like yesterday there were rallies uh, of aged care workers, uh, personal care assistants, uh, nurses outside uh, Morrison government members' offices around the country, uh, basically saying, you know, the, the, the basic, most basic thing the Royal Commission found was there has to be an average daily minutes of care per person in care of 200 minutes, 200 minutes a day. Across 24 hours, that's not a huge amount, right? And that's supposed to be in place by October 2023. There's it's no, three hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, that's three hours and 20 minutes. There's no plan to get there by October 2023. The workforce is totally wrecked and burnt oh. out. People know the system is broken. When you're operating in a broken system, it is disheartening. We've all had that experience of being in a dysfunctional workplace. If you've not been in aged care, imagine your experience of a dysfunctional workplace and extrapolate that across your entire sector, knowing that no matter which workplace you go to, it's probably going to be as bad, if not worse. So the United Workers Union is one of the unions that represent workers in aged care, and they were sharing... Um, the stories on social media yesterday of workers in the aged care system. Yeah. And there was one that really got to me. It was a worker who was just so overtired, uh, like insane levels, uh, insane staffing arrangements, no proper support and not knowing what to do in a situation who just couldn't stop crying. Yeah. And all these people were depending on this woman. They were so short-staffed. You know, they were working more hours than they could handle and she, there she was at work just crying out of sheer frustration at the situation they were in. And I'm like, and these are our most vulnerable Australians. Yeah. These are people who, you know, have lived long lives contributing to their families, to their communities, to their workplaces, to the economy. You know, they've done all the things, you know, to that 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 are the Australian life, and at the end of that effort at work, the dignity they have is six dollars a day on food, a minister who doesn't turn up to answer questions, less than an hour of COVID care. infections that just rip through them, le- less than an hour of care. And staff the, bursting into tears. like. And let's talk about the staff. It sounds like hell. Like it actually sounds like hell. Oh, it's yeah. hell before you die. And it and it's, it's totally foreseen. <sighs> the problems are known. The Royal Commission has been, been undertaken. There are recommendations to fix it. The staff know there's a problem. The staff raise issues. We know that the staff are overworked, undertrained and underpaid. In, as in most of our caring industries, it's a highly feminised industry as well. Surprise! It's underpaid. Incredible. So this is one of the points I wanted to make, Van, is the HSU are pushing for an equal pay decision. So basically saying that the workers in the aged care sector are underpaid by 25% because they're women and that this would lift the minimum pay of about 145,000 workers. Now- it's a 25% pay increase. You might go, that's a lot of money. That, that'll be a big increase. Can you, how much do you think their hourly wage will be if they get a 25% increase? $27 an hour. 
You're well close, twenty nine. Twenty nine dollars an hour. Outrageous. Like twenty nine dollars an hour to look after our most vulnerable people, to care for them, to bathe them, to help them with their getting dressed with their medications, like all the things that personal care assistants have to do, uh, you know, to assist them with their basic movement, uh, to make sure that they're in a fit state to see their family members. Oh, look, and this is... I it mean, you- it's just not a lot of money. In my view, $29 an hour is the, the, the least we could be paying people for that. Yes, and these are, imp- like, they're important services. I mean, this is the thing. When my mother has been ill... It's been it's been really hard for me to be her carer. I'll be quite honest about that. Like I'm a writer. I am not a nurse. I am not a trained care worker. Mm. And I can't. I actually do not know how to do the things that professionals know how to do. And the idea that those skills that are beyond my remit as an individual, far beyond it, because they are professional skills. Like that they're paid so badly. It's an insult to everyone. Like families need help. Yeah. They need help. Constantly this pressure from the government about and employers about increased productivity in the workforce. We can't we can't accommodate quality of care and that kind of those kind of care relationships, not everybody is in a position to perform them. And Australian families are desperately trying to survive by an intersection of services and care and jobs and responsibilities to other people and it's demanding and it's confusing and it's hard and we to be productive in the broader economy, we need these care structures to exist, to take the pressure off workers who are not care workers. So our family members don't suffer, so they're not in pain, so they're not being fed garbage, and so they don't have to live out the last few years of their lives in terror of freaking coronavirus. Absolutely. And I just say at this point, you know, we've talked about the United Workers Union, obviously the Health Services Union, uh, Australian Nursing Midwives uh, Midwifery Federation. Uh, that's the Nurses Union. Uh, these are all actively pushing for pay increases, for staff ratios, for better support. And I just have to say, whether you're in that sector or not, join your union. Join a union because it is absolutely vital, right across the board, that the, that workers are unionised so that we can, in our own workplace, whether it's an aged care workplace or not go, we want to have this intersection where care services are effective, are safe, are delivering for for our family members. And we can do that better when our voice is part of the chorus that is a union. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. And they'll even tell you which is the right union for you. How good is that? I think that this has been very sad, this discussion, and makes me feel very despairing. So you should tell everybody listening how cute the dog is. The dog is very cute. The dog is sort of, I don't know what he is, he's sort of curled around your knee having a little snooze. Um Van, one of the things that you brought up is around care. And, of course, we know that in the Australian economy, not just in the caring industries but care at home is predominantly done by women. And this week we saw Australian unions launch a new report entitled Morrison Missing, 
a record of his failure for working women. I mean, that's kind of unambiguous, really, isn't it? <laughs> I think we're pretty A record clear of his failure. Well done, Scott Morrison. By the way, we're, what, 51% of the population, 52, and you have failed us. It's a it's a pretty it's a pretty damning jo- uh, title for anything. Uh, of course, International Women's Day is next week as well. I don't know. Lots of unions are organising events right around the country. Uh, I know that Victorian Trades Hall is having a big rally in Melbourne uh, as uh, next week. So check that out. Uh, Weareunion.org.au, I think, is their website. Especially if you're a new union member yeah. and you've never been to a union thing before, can I recommend going to the International Women's Day events organised by Trades Hall And because you will see union culture in full flight and be around other union members and it'll be fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I think the points in the report – Probably not as fun as the rallies will be, I have to say. No, no, not really. I'm gonna I'm gonna break them down a little bit because it's pretty damning and and, I, and it explains why it's called his record of failure. So under the Morrison government, a woman in Australia earns four hundred and eighty-three dollars and thirty cents less per week than a man. They retire with about half the amount of super as a man. Uh, a woman is less likely to have any control over the hours of work less likely to have job security and is more likely to have been sacked and or lose hours during the pandemic. Uh, is a two in three, this is shocking, a two in three chance that she has been, experienced sexual harassment at her current or former workplace. Two out of three women in Australia. I've been sexually harassed at work. It's uh, well, Not at my present job. No. But when I was a teaching assistant, I was sexually harassed by another staff member at work. It was disgusting. When I worked in hospo, it was just, that was just a day at work. It's- Everything from appalling comments to being touched up, like the most disgusting behavior you could possibly imagine. And the problem is that when there's no structural solution, to it, when it's not addressed, it just becomes normalised. And I look back on my years in hospo and just think, wow, I worked in a workplace where it was normal to me to get sexually harassed at work. I think it's absolutely outrageous. And I think it goes to that point about the Respect at Work report, which is now a couple of years old. And one of the recommendations was to make sexual harassment a workplace health and safety issue uh, and covered by workplace health and safety laws so that people could take actions under that law and that regime rather than the kind of civil processes that have to be undergone now. Of course, we see those sometimes in the media, and they're brutal. Those civil proceedings are very hard. They're very hard on the victims and the people who bring them, and and you can see why people are reluctant to do that, you know, because you know it's going to cost you your job. You, you know, best-case scenario, you win after months of being uh, besmirched either in the media or in your community, uh, and you maybe get a payout at the end. And ultimately, the individuals involved who committed those offences are still able to run companies and be directors and all the rest of it. It's 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 outrageous, and it needs to be addressed uh, properly. And there are recommendations. The the solutions to these problems exist. It's not. This is the thing that I think speaks to why it's a record of failure is because it's not as though we don't know the solution to these problems. We know they're complex. We know that sometimes there's a cost involved, but we also know the cost of not doing anything is much, much higher. And I'll give you another example here, right? So Australian women 
have some of the most expensive early childhood education and care and have the second worst paid parental leave scheme in the developed world. Now, it's only second worst because America has none and America is by far and away the worst. We know in countries with good parental leave schemes, talking about Scandinavian countries, Northern European countries, you've got women's participation in the workforce is much higher. You've got and they're more productive. They're more productive because they're not freaked out about what's happening to their children. All better the time. GDP, better GDP per capita, like better retirement outcomes. Oh, I will never get over. I did some work in Sweden a few years ago, and it was on a a project that had received some local government support. Yeah. And so we were using the local government offices. I talk about this all the time, and I love how stunned I was where the childcare centre, workplace childcare, was in the middle of the office floor. So everybody had their offices around like an open plan childcare centre so they could see their kids all day, their kids knew their parents were nearby, the early childhood educators could bring anything to a parent's attention as soon as it came up if there was a problem or needed an intervention whatever. Like it was just completely amazing and it meant that parents could have lunch with their kids and maintain that parental connection and bond. And they had almost no absenteeism in that workplace because kids were there, parents were there. It was incredible. And I was just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And all the Swedes were like, what do you mean? Like this is this is what we do. It's a different way of thinking about work, isn't it? It's it's about work is part of our uh, societal ecosystem rather than being the sole focus of a person's existence to the exclusion of all other interests and and, and inputs. And it's just like a lot of work is boring and <laughs> being away from, I mean, I, I struggle to hold down office jobs as yeah. you well know. It's not really in my character and I would rather be poor. Um, but the, the work shouldn't have to be miserable. Like even if workplace tasks are boring or repetitive or, you know, you shouldn't have to be, doubly punished by being separated from your family as well. Like any kind of forward-thinking government would be thinking about workplace childcare. It's good for morale, you know, even the the mix of the new workplace with so many people now working from home Mm. because of the pandemic and going, why am I spending three hours a day commuting and away from my family and having to organise care and all these things? Like there is a mix which should be available, which is for workplace-based childcare, your kids are nearby, you feel connected as a family. Well, it's interesting you talk about the impact of coronavirus and people working from home and people rethinking work because part of the report included a survey of 3,000 people and it it sort of takes into account the immediate post-pandemic or end-of-pandemic phase we're in, I guess, and it found that 77% of women said the cost of living has gotten worse, and that was much worse than men. 67% of men said it had gotten worse. That's 10 points worse off for women. 55% of women said their job security had gotten worse compared to 45% of men. So, again, 10 points. And 56% of women believe the economy has gotten worse compared to half of men. And 40% of older women were retiring into poverty. I mean, Van... It almost feels like, and we've talked about this before, but some the, of the fastest growing growing group of homeless people in Australia is older women. Yeah, yeah, and and the the lessons of the pandemic about taking care of each other, about an economy that is people focused, that when you have that kind of people focused, community focus, your economy not only does well, 
but your people do well, which means your economy does better, which means your people do better. Like that, that, that positive virtuous cycle that we had for that kind of feels like just like a brief window, right? Is being totally trashed and ignored now. And for no particular reason, this is what I can't understand. It's like we actually have the tools and the resources and the money and the popular and the popular will yeah. in order to renegotiate what workplaces look like. And it doesn't matter if you work in a warehouse or an office or a factory or a munitions dump. Like it shouldn't matter. Part of the planning around the workplace has got to look and realistically look at care relationships and what that how that does impact on work and what the role is for government to negotiate between employees and employees about how social structures can work in everyone's favour. That's economic long-term planning and that's good social planning as well. It's good for health, it's good for education outcomes and all these things. Well, let's talk about what government can do about the workplace issues, Van, because you raise a really good point and the report that Australians put out coincides with the legal case they're running at the Fair Work Commission, of course, a government uh, body regulated by government, legislated by government, appointed by government, where the union movement is saying that um, family and domestic violence leave should be a paid entitlement. It should be available to all workers, right? Now, they've made this argument. They've brought forward paramedics, doctors, lawyers, domestic violence workers, uh, all people who said that when you support people leaving abusive relationships, and we know it's predominantly women, uh, who are in this situation, it saves lives, it gets people back into work more quickly, it's better for people, it's better for economic prosperity because they become more productive again at work. And, you know, the union movement's making this case and the employer lobby group is saying, no, 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 there's unpaid domestic violence leave, that's what people are entitled to. If you need, that's you can have that time off. It's like telling people they're entitled to take unpaid time off is is implicitly saying that they're otherwise a servant, and if they if they take unpaid time off, otherwise they're somehow in trouble. But anyway, putting that to one side for a moment, the point is that the employer lobby groups were unable to find a single employer, not one employer, of the millions of employers from very small, literally millions, to very large in this country to support their case. None of them would come forward and say, yes, at Coles, we think this is a bad idea, or yes, at Woolworths, we think this is a bad idea, or McDonald's, or or Mobile, or 7-Eleven, or Meyer, or anyone. No one would come forward and say, we think this is a bad idea. But their lobby group is in there lobbying against it. Now, I think this is absolutely to your point. Government has a role here. Like, if business is not prepared to front up and support its own lobby group to say this is a bad idea. Government should just say this is obviously nobody objects to this. No. <laughs> and we should just we should just do it. So here's a here's a spoiler alert. If you are so ashamed of holding the position against domestic violence leave, like if you're an employer who is so ashamed of wanting to hold that back that you can't even front up to demand it, guess what? You've admitted that it's actually really necessary. 
Yeah, I th- I really. It's it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing. Well, people don't want it, but they won't admit to it. It's like because they know they would be perpetuating a cycle of abuse. Well, yeah, it's phenomenal, isn't it? And look, you know, and I get that lobby groups are there to represent members, and I get all that. Like that's all part of our system. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to make a case, and you've got to be able to argue your point and say, as an employer. I don't think we should have this because of X, Y, or Z. And if you're not prepared to do that or you can't do that, then you're, you're either admitting that you don't have a case, or as you say, that it's so shameful, so ethically and morally bankrupt to hold that position that even if you could make an economic argument about it, you simply are unwilling to. Because how do you show your face at the Lord Mayor's Charitable Dinner, at the Lord Mayor's Charitable Gala, at the Comedy Festival Gala, if you've been in the dock at the Fair Work Commission saying that, oh, no, victims of domestic violence shouldn't be given a paid day off, they should just be able to take unpaid time. I mean, obviously you can't, right? No. Oh, it's awful. It's just awful. Anyway. Well, there are some more good news. I love how I'm just used to this. It's like, yep, people are totally awful. But, you know, not everybody's totally awful. And and something that initially I saw is, and, you know, this speaks to, I guess, my privilege as a straight white middle-class male now, um, that I saw as initially amusing but actually is quite serious, is was the Australian Services Union who represents a lot of the workers at Qantas, um, you know, everybody in the sort of um, check-in and a lot of uh, administrative work that that uh, is done at Qantas and at airports, has written to Qantas, who is a major partner of Mardi Gras and whose CEO is a proclaimed champion of change, asking Qantas to update their outdated uniform policy. And I had no idea this was a thing. No, I had no idea either. Right? But so the uniform policy includes that women um, who wear skirts must wear high heels uh, women have to wear makeup. Uh, men are not allowed to wear makeup. Uh, women uh, must wear smaller watch faces than men. I mean, that was a, that's bizarre to me. And men are not allowed to wear beards. And as a beardy man, let me just say, I find that outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Like if you think about when Qantas was founded, most Australian men at that point would have had beards. So this is clearly, like, any idea that this is about tradition, I think, is a nonsense. Uh, but, of course, the ASU has written this letter and you would expect, I would hope Qantas would take it seriously because, frankly, you know, if you're going to sponsor Mardi Gras and you're going to call yourself a champion of change and you're going to say you want to increase the, the number of women in um, pilot roles and engineering roles and you want to be a, an equal opportunity employer, then you can't have some outdated uniform policy that talks about women having smaller watch faces and having to wear high heels. And, I just feel like getting- You know, big, gendered makeup rules. I, 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 I feel like getting a really big watch just to wear it around because, <laughs> as you know, I fly Qantas a lot. We could do Flavor Flav. We could. We could absolutely do Flavor Flav, baby. Yeah. We could do that. No. You know, and I don't mind putting a bit of eyeliner on you and going without myself and marching you proudly onto a Qantas jet with your beard on. I mean, this is just crazy. I could sing Love Cats on the- Entry on the gang ramp. You'd better. Yeah. You'd better. Right? I just, I'm just stunned that it still exists. I think like, it, it surprised I th- a lot And I of think people. it has surprised a lot of people because I, because they, actually were talking about it today and I was like, 
you've got to be joking. And the requests are very simple, you know, that can women have the right to wear flat shoes with skirts? I'm like, how are you, why wouldn't you? Like, especially in an aircraft environment, like you're told when you get your aircraft safety briefing on an international flight to remove high-heeled shoes if you have to slide down the inflatable roughs. But, but, I, so but the that- actual people who are running that safety procedure are wearing shoes that like, like what? It's quite bizarre. And and some of those long-haul flights, I can't imagine that's a comfortable- No, it's a workplace health and safety issue. You would think so. You would think so. And, like, nobody's against having a uniform policy. Sure. Like, that's fine. And that's also workplace health and safety. Yeah. Like, you I- need to be identified who, who the cabin crew are because if and there's an emergency, it's I understand weird. that there are associations yeah. with corporate branding. I do get sure, that. I sure. don't support the capitalist system, but we live in it. And- but this is ridiculous. And, of course, what's happened, Ben? Well, there's been a right-wing backlash, like a, some kind of like, – as though this is somehow so – The sacred a, virtue of keeping working women in uncomfortable footwear must be maintained lest society will crumble. And I just can't – I can't fathom why it is that, you know, gender identity wars from from people on the right fixate on, on these sorts of things. Like – well, I do know. We've talked about it before, right? It's to avoid having people think about the material reality of their condition and think about what life could be like. Instead, it's to go, oh, no, if women wear the same size watch as me, I'm lessened as a man. Like, i got to tell you. If you think <laughs> that you are lessened as a man by a woman wearing a watch face as big as yours, you were never a man to begin with. Can I just say you were just a large jelly seizing at the abstract concept of masculinity to provide an identity yourself that you didn't actually earn through any performance of virtue or strength. And I had to break it to you, buddy, but those days are over. We can see you. And I think probably part of it is that those those gelatinous individuals who claim manhood uh, are often... Uh, have traditionally been quite wealthy uh, and powerful and probably fly at the front end of the plane more often than not. And to some degree, they feel as though this is a bastion of their old-fashioned view of the world. I've got to say, as somebody who flies a lot, the the mythos that Australia is an, a gender egalitarian society is destroyed the moment you walk into a Qantas lounge because the women start disappearing. There are not very many women in the standard Qantas lounge. There are even fewer in the business lounge. And in those rare moments you and I have had access to the chairman's lounge, I think we can agree the women are pretty thin on the ground. If it wasn't for the Labor Party quota policy that put that yeah. has been responsible for delivering gender parity in the federal party, um, I don't think you would see as many women in the I chairman's wouldn't. lounge. There's no question. There's no and it's, look. yeah. I mean, it's it's so conspicuous, and it is. It's this ridiculous gender war uh, pursued by people on the right. And you and I have been talking about this. There was an excellent piece by Caitlin Burns, who's one of my favourite American journalists, about uh, the Putin's war in Ukraine and how there are people on the American right who've been saying, oh, of course uh, Russia is attacked and the West is so weak because we don't even know if we're boys or girls anymore. And it's like, do you know the whole transgender thing is about the fact that people do know whether they're boys or girls? Like they know. Yeah. And 
And it's that knowledge, that conviction, which is what leads people to make public transitions to affirm their gender identity, which is known very well to themselves. But the idea that recognising that transgender people exist, are human and deserve equal rights to everybody else, this apparently is the reason why autocrats um, of the Putin variety are, you know, threatening bastions of liberal democracy. I, I it, it is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It is the most absolutely just crazy gumbo. It's <laughs> what it is, is crazy gumbo. It's like a soup of paranoia. We don't even know who the men and women are. And it's like, but what are you? Do you have any kind of sense of inherent conviction or are you relying on ridiculous gender stereotypes from your favourite past historical era to build an identity for yourself because you are so weak, because you are so weak, you cannot handle difference. People who cannot handle difference are weak. They are the weakest weaky weakos in the goddamn world. And I I have really had a week on this particular issue because I wrote an article, of course, supporting the right of transgender women to play sport. Inherently also the right of transgender men to play sport, which somehow doesn't get as much of an airing. And, of course, all the statistics are there about how it's entirely the same, the fact that there are transgender women playing all kinds of sport and guess what? Not dominating them universally at every level tends to indicate that it's a bit of a beat up. Oh, the transgender women in sport thing. I just find find the level of transphobia outrageous. I think heaps of it is just based on misogyny and, you know, this, this idea that if you were a signed male at birth, the idea that you would have an inherent conviction that you were a woman is terrifying to some men. Like who would who well, would choose that? It's not that just- awful inferior status. And it's like, look. This is nuts. This is just complete. This is your nonsense that you are using your power and your platform to take out often on very persecuted, marginalized people. And I want to say, Van, it's not just in the US, right? Because no, and this yeah, is what's so outrageous. Because, of course, you know, as we've seen, it, it, Trump and Ben Shapiro and others in the US, the far right people in the US. Oh, that paragon of masculinity, Donald Trump. I mean, doesn't he just say manhood, manhood, manhood to you? Uh, ben Shapiro, I mean, that's a guy who really fulfills every stereotype of masculine strength. But it's Tony Abbott had an article in The Australian. Ah, former Prime Minister Incomprehensible Tony. noises. And it really was. Like, his article was incomprehensible noise. I, and I think I even said to you, this reads like a man who suffered too many concussions. Like, it, it is... It is just, it, firstly, it's a garbage piece. Like, it's poorly written. No, it just, yeah. so everybody, if you didn't have the automatic brain bleed that came from <laughs> actually reading it, let us sum up and spare you the, the blood running down the eyeballs reality of the piece. Tony Abbott is literally saying that he's repeating that culture war far-right talking point associated with the Republicans and their spruikers in the United States and literally saying that Putin has attacked Ukraine because Western society has recognised that transgender people exist. That is essentially the summary of the otherwise incomprehensible dribble that someone went, you know, we should print this. We should take a precious tree and, you know, the precious source of ink, these limited resources, and devote them to printing this garbage. And it is garbage. And I think we should talk about Putin's war. And frankly, which is not about transgender people. Yeah, That's not who it's about. And let me, yeah, let's be really clear about that. It is not, it is not now and has never been and never will be about what pronouns people use like it's got nothing to do with pronouns and it's it's actually it's a geopolitical war 
started by a man who has manipulated Russian, US, UK, European, Australian domestic politics for the best part of a decade to keep power in his own country, uh, basically for most of my adult life. Uh, he's used it to enrich himself, his oligarch mates. He's only- one of the richest people in the world. Vladimir Putin is one of the richest people in the world uh, as the result of theft from the Russian people and the Russian state. There are more billionaires in Moscow than there are in London, LA or Silicon Valley. Now, there is also incredible levels of poverty. You and I have both been to Moscow when I was there in 2007. There was literally homeless people on every street. Oh, when I was there in 2004, my, no, 2005 it was, my enduring memory was of people taking down street signs and standing where the street sign was in order to sell tourist street directions because that's how poor it was. It is Putin's war in Ukraine is totally ideologically driven. And I'm not talking about cultural war ideology. I'm talking about essentially a neo-fascist nationalism. He believes Ukraine is part of Russia. He believes in a form of national Bolshevism, and he's advised by- If that sounds a bit familiar, it should, national Bolshevism. I want you to remember that time the word socialism was corrupted by having the word national put in front of it, and you get a bit of an idea of the ideological context about what's going on here. I'd encourage people, if if you have access to Twitter- to search in Twitter Putin's Rasputin and you'll see tweets and articles about a man named Dugin. Yes, Alexander Dugin, who's a neo-fascist Russian philosopher and if who's you, literally written a manual about how to establish national Bolshevism from Russia onwards. And if you look at some of those tweets, you'll see some of the imagery that he uses to, to create symbols for national Bolshevism and they look remarkably like Nazi symbols. Don't they just? They are almost I don't know what it was, if it was the black sort of swastika-like version of the hammer and sickle in a white circle with a red background. I think for me that was kind of the the dead visual giveaway for what was going on. And the thing is that Dugan, who, by the way, pals around with Steve Bannon, what a coincidence, oh, this happens to get mentioned in my rather popular book, QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. I wonder why. That's right. Um, Good callback because it's all connected here. It is. It's all connected. Absolutely it's connected. We know that the Russians were, uh, we know because intelligence services from all over the world told us that they participated in an influence campaign to make Donald Trump president of the United States. We know that. We know that they shared data, notably hacks of the Democratic Party, um, which were then shared Mm. through WikiLeaks and in order to discredit Hillary Clinton in the context of that campaign. We know that there were plenty of guys, including my personal favourite, Paul Manafort, who was employed um, as a consultant at the cost of tens of millions of dollars to get pro-Russian politicians elected in. Oh, what country, Ben? What country was Paul Manafort? Ukraine. Yes, and then went to work for free. At the time, he was significantly in debt to a Russian oligarch um, as the the original campaign chair for Donald Trump before he was moved aside and replaced with Steve Bannon. Um, this is a man who was convicted of fraud, of witness tampering and lying, mm-hmm. um, lying to the Mueller investigation and then pardoned by Trump. We know but, all of these things exist. And, and what it... What it sort of all comes back to here in in the the here and now with Putin's war is that 
he believes in this concept, right? Like that this that Dugan and Bannon and Manafort and all these people have been involved in creating the circumstance for this, uh, and I quote, radically revolutionary and consistent fascist fascism in Russia. They believe that Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Finland, Romania, North Macedonia, Serbia, something they describe as Serbian Bosnia and Greece should all be part of a greater Russia. And and the thing, Van, that I find so amazing about this, because your book, you know, your book talks about how the internet has um, facilitated or the certain ways in which the internet has allowed these ideas to become um, part of how Western society is corrupted, really, mm-hmm. uh, and and how our democracies are being undermined. Um, one of the things that I found really amazing this week was learning that 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 this has been out there since 1997. This this guy Dugan, the, the Putin Ras, Putin's Rasputin, wrote a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics. In yeah, 1997. this is his, this is his manifesto. And one of the details in the Foundation for Geopolitics is encouraging. Britain to leave the European Union. Yeah. What a massive coincidence. And it's not like he's some random guy. Like no. we're not this is not oh yeah, this you know, he's a lizard to person who's connected no, no. to the Rothschilds. Like Putin consults with this guy. Like he is the ideological brain of this project. And of course, we know that there was enormous amounts of Russian money that flowed through the Brexit campaign yeah. in the UK. We know that there was the wife of a Russian oligarch who made two million pounds worth of donations to the Conservative Party, parts of the Conservative Party that of course pushed Brexit. Like these things have been they're not they're not hiding in plain sight. They're now a matter of record. How like a Russian power associated with the Kremlin and specifically Putin and this neo-fascist ideology has been used to uh, whip up domestic discontent in order to drive political polarisation in Western countries. We know this. You can read Nina Yankovic's brilliant book, How to Lose the Information War, where she studied in Estonia and in Ukraine about Russian disinformation campaigning there and how uh, governments were trying to resist that impact, like this, is established yeah. fourth, like fourth and, war information war stuff. And, and this, I mean, this guy and his book, you know, it's a textbook of the general staff of the Russian military. So when we say, you know, this isn't a random guy with some random book, this is—he's not a blogger. This is, this is, yeah, he's not running a podcast out of his study in his shed. Let me tell you, I mean, he's not at our level, but he's up there, right? Like he's he, Russian military ideological textbook. influence over an authoritarian government led by a dictator that's just invaded a country. It's recommended for Russian school children to read this book, and it does. It bra- it breaks down how to do Brexit. It talks about the destruction of American liberalism. I mean, Putin is—he's an authoritarian. He literally has his opponents rounded up. He has people imprisoned. You were telling me 5,000 people have been imprisoned for posting anti-war social media posts. Oh, well, not only posting social media posts but also attending demonstrations. They've made it, the Russian government have made it a 20-year a, a, a crime punishable by 20 years in prison for expressing, like, disloyalty to the Russian state by posting things like no war messages or attending demonstrations. And there was an article in the Washington Post today about a guy who's an engineer at an ice skating rink who is facing down a 15 to 20-year sentence for a Facebook post saying this war is ridiculous. The guy is a totalitarian. Like, he just totally is. And, and we've known this 
We've known this the whole time in the West. The deal that we've done with this particular devil is that he would sell us oil and gas in into Europe. He would his billionaires would be benevolent owners of football clubs. It would give two million pounds to the British Conservative Party. There would be this kind of She took them all on a girls' night, he, apparently. And girls he wouldn't night. be and he wouldn't be a communist, right? This was basically this was basically all it took for him to uh, for him to dissuade the Western powers from doing anything about the fact that he was murdering people in his own country. He poisoned people in Britain, in Salisbury, a very pleasant town yeah. where you and I have spent. Yeah, we've been you know, there. It's like flower gardens and churches, yeah, yeah. Salisbury, very flat. Yeah. And two people were poisoned, like Novichok poisoning, which took place on British soil, and yet what 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 happened? Oh, well, you know, it was just... An inconvenience. I think the ambassador got recalled for a week or something. But there's also been the ongoing persecution of Navalny, who is, of course, yeah. the Russian. Again, poisoned. Yeah, the, and blinded and all kinds of things that they've done to Navalny, who is currently in prison. And yet, you know, everybody's participated. Um, the structures of power have engaged quite proactively with Russian money in the forms of the oligarchs. And just so people understand what we mean by oligarchs, when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, the West were very keen to get into this new market, hundreds of millions of people yeah. um, in you know the new market of post-Soviet Russia. We wanted Russia. their oil, gas, their iron ore, the uranium. We wanted to be able to sell them stuff, Coca-Cola. So dudes who really had like relationships with power yeah. went to Western banks and said, I have no capital and no assets, but lend me a few hundred million dollars to buy a state asset because everything's being privatised and I'll pay you back. And they got that stuff for cents in the dollar. In some cases, they estimate that the oligarchs paid as little as seven cents for every dollar worth of value that they got out of a state asset immediately. Not that they added value to it or they changed it in some way or they did anything to it, but essentially they got 93% discount on the price of the assets they were getting from the Russian state. So they're essentially robber barons. They're not yeah. there because they built up businesses. No. They're there because they administered businesses that had to exist, like yeah. you know, um, basic like basic utilities and yeah. things like that. And, of course, they all must be loyal to Putin. They control the economy as like a, literally a cabal. I mean, that is actually why that word exists. And they're recallable to Putin's whim. We had the situation of one of these oligarchs a few years ago who went off who went off peace, who started, you know, speaking his own lines in the play, and is of course in prison and lost all of his assets and has been there for some time. And I think you can see how this plays out. Like the Minister for Defense lives in a palace. I saw photos of it. It it it's like something it's like a it's like a Japanese castle at a ghost of Tsushima. Like it's these they all have these massive palaces, ministers with palaces and yachts and and you know these businessmen in inverted commas who all have Yachts and holiday homes around the world—it's all out there. It's 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 actually really easy to see, and we and we've, parts of the world have turned a blind eye to it. And what's interesting now is that Putin—we're not—we're not able to. We're not going to do that anymore. The world has said no. We're not turning a blind eye to this anymore. We're we're effectively cutting you off, right? And I talked about this in the weekend wrap that. Russia has been cut off from the SWIFT system, which is the international banking transfer system, but it's getting even worse. So 
the interest rates in Russia have doubled. They're now over 20%. Think about that. In Australia, it's 0.1% is the official cash rate. In Russia, it's 20%. The ruble is now worth one cent against the US dollar. 2014, it was nearly 40 cents. So again, completely destroyed. People's credit cards aren't working in shops because they've been cut off from the international uh, money system. Uh, cash machines in parts of Russia have run out of money. Uh, people won't accept payment in rubles, which is the official currency of Russia. Apple and Google have essentially cut off the country. You can't order their products or use their products now. Even Facebook and YouTube have at least taken the step of demonetizing those channels, so they've cut off the flow of cash. I believe, as of today, YouTube are not uh, are not platforming RT, which is Russia Today, yeah. or Sputnik, which are of course Russian state propaganda media. And, and it's having an impact. It's having an impact. Russia, Vladimir Putin's illegal invasion of the sovereign state of Ukraine has become uh, the most toxic branding event. In history, everything Russia is toxic. In the United States, in Canada, they're not stocking Russian vodka on the shelves in bars or in bottle shops. Um, companies like Maersk, who's one of the biggest shipping companies in yeah. the world, will not be making deliveries to Russia. Uh, Daimler, who make um, transportation equipment, who German company, they're not supplying. Um, Disney are refusing to show movies there. Neither are Warner Brothers, or like they've lost. They've lost Star Wars. Russia have literally lost access to Star Wars. Well, and and the impact it's having is really starting to cut through because also assets are starting to be seized, right? We're seeing jets seized and yachts seized and luxury holiday homes. And and one of these propagandist Russian TV presenters who, you know, owns property overseas um, had a couple of his holiday homes seized by European authorities. And he went, he literally broke down and cried and ranted about it on television you know, in a country where people can't get access to cash, the value of their money has totally been wiped out. Their, their employment is about to go as well, you would think. They've, this guy goes on TV to cry about his luxury holiday homes. I think the oligarchs are going to find themselves under a lot of pressure internally. You know, they've all been sent home from just about every country in the world has basically said, you can't stay here anymore, get out. So Joe Biden has announced that the United States will be seizing the assets, not freezing, but seizing, taking possession of the assets of the oligarchs. And there has been a race away from American harbours, oligarchs particularly like Miami, I'm told, this time of year, um, with their super yachts, these like multi, multi, multi multi-million dollar yachts, these ridiculous you know, like like symbols of power and wealth that they have, um, and they're and they're literally looking for ports to take them. And you know, Van, that part of Putin's war, or I think that domestic part of it, you know, I don't want to see the Russian people suffer, and of course, we want to see the sanctions as targeted as possible to the oligarchs because those are people who do, frankly, deserve to suffer as much economic and personal indignity as is possible to inflict on another human being, in my view. Um, what what else is happening in this war, though, is, of course, there is actual fighting going on, mm. and there's actual fighting going on in Ukraine. Putin, because of his ideology that we've talked about, expected and told 
it would seem the Russian soldiers that they would be greeted as liberators, that the Ukrainian people would not put up a resistance. Of course, we now know that Ukrainian people have put up a staunch resistance. It's extraordinary that 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 the overwhelming uh, amount of material and men that Russia could bring to bear wouldn't even need to be brought to bear because Ukraine would surrender. This was the theory. And according to various reports that American intelligence is making known to international media, mm. um, the so what the Americans have done, this is quite unusual, is that they have made their intelligence public yeah. because they know that the Russians fight propaganda wars, the Russians yeah. fight information war. And under Joe Biden, the Americans have made some very clever tactical decisions in a very unstable and potentially dangerous, very globally dangerous environment. And so they're releasing information to their allies and to the world media. They have a very high-placed leak in somewhere in the Russian government that said that Putin has become very isolated and is only receiving information that he wants to hear. Those incredible photos released by the Russians, released by the Kremlin, of Putin sitting at a 40-foot table at yeah. one end of it away from a small group of military and government advisors sort of gives pretty concrete um, evidence yeah. to the claim that he's become quite isolated but doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be getting the information that this is that things are not going to plan. And I want to talk about the plan because it's not working. Russian logistics are so bad that tanks and armored vehicles are being abandoned due to lack of fuel. There's a 40-mile column apparently of vehicles sitting outside Kiev unable to move for the past couple of days. Um, the the Ukrainians have maintained control over the skies. We've all seen footage of burnt out Russian vehicles that have been hit clearly been hit by air attacks. None of this should be possible. No, it, it shouldn't. It should It should be um, the case of overwhelming force and overwhelming odds. Now, of course, the, ideolo- the ideological view and the corruption combined have eroded Russia's capacity to fight a quick and relatively bloodless war. The, the fear now, of course, is that the Russian artillery, Russian tanks, the superior amount of planes that they can put in the air will be used in a more indiscriminate way, and we are starting to see some of that. Just before we did this broadcast, uh, the BBC released footage of uh, Russian forces attacking apartment buildings and attacking civilian targets. There's been bombing of kindergartens. There was the bombing of a maternity hospital. And these are tactics we know the Russian military employed against Chechnya. We know they uh, started to employ in Georgia. Uh, We know that there were large numbers of civilian casualties recently in Kazakhstan during a Russian deployment. And we know, of course, that during Russian deployments in Syria, there have been significant civilian casualties as well. The International Criminal Court is looking at the war crimes trials uh, and potential war crimes charges about the war in Ukraine. I think we're seeing the EU uh, sending arms to the Ukraine. Sweden, traditionally very neutral country. Switzerland, like absolutely a neutral country. Like these are these are countries. These are measures that are only happening because Putin has gone to war in Ukraine. Putin has started the war. Putin is prosecuting the war. It is a war of invasion. This is there's there's no liminality here. Like there's no, oh well, you know, 
Like, come on, there's two sides to everything. There really isn't. It is the invasion of a sovereign country. Of course, Russia annexed territory of Ukraine before. Yeah. Um, and it took possession, took took possession of the Crimea, you know, created this narrative about you know, like Russian-friendly communities. And one can see that in this this trajectory of justifying the war, it's like, well, these people really do want to be Russia and this used to be part of the Soviet Union. This has always been part of Imperial Russia. Somebody made the point the other day, like all Ukrainians speak Russian, but not all Russians speak Ukrainian. And the, it, somebody else was describing how the emergence of Zelensky as a national hero, the president who didn't flee the country. Yeah. And let's remember, you know, until recently – there was a Russian-backed government in Ukraine who received yeah, rather yeah. a lot of help, people like Paul Manafort yeah, perhaps, yeah, yeah. Um, getting elected. And when he was overthrown in the Orange Revolution, because yeah. Ukrainians were of fairly convicted belief that this was not entirely democratic kind of uh, situation, um, fled to Russia, uh, had palaces and 100 vintage cars and things like that. Like we pay Scott Morrison pretty well, but he hasn't got 100 vintage <laughs> cars. Um, and that kind of, you know, these are these are the contexts that we're operating in. We're not talking about a, a country that that has like a divided identity anymore. We're seeing one that is fighting tooth and nail for its right to exist. They've applied to join NATO now. They've applied to join the EU. Like these, Ukraine sees itself as part of Western Europe. And it is really interesting to see the geopolitical ramifications of what Putin has done. Obviously, under Trump, who was quite mm. Putin-friendly, you had the United States, who's the big backer of NATO, the North Atlantic yeah. Trading Organization, your military alliance with Western democracies, um, that uh, uh, Trump didn't want to pay for yeah. NATO anymore yeah. and he wanted the alliance to fall apart. And, you know, we got four years of this NATO schmato from Trump. Well, we're all seeing the intense strategic value of NATO now and so are NATO members. For me, what was really interesting was hearing um, the Prime Minister of Lithuania um, describe, you know, Lithuania's mm. concerns about uh, what's going on in Ukraine and the invasion of a sovereign country by Russia. And, of course, Lithuania was annexed by the Soviet Union in the past, et cetera. And, and describe Lithuania as we are a Western democracy. Yeah. And it's like the Baltic states haven't always been conceived of as Western countries. Yeah, yeah. You know, and this was, you know, the Baltic states, Eastern Europe and the rest of it. But what this invasion has done has really coagulated this idea of NATO and coagulated the idea of the EU and the strength of the EU. And it, it is extraordinary. Obviously, the far-right movements, what a coincidence, that were also quite Putin-friendly, have been agitating against EU membership because in European countries for years. Let's be really clear here. Putin is far-right. You know, we've talked about it in this episode. The evidence is there. It's clear. The guy is a totalitarian. He believes in a fascist form of fascism for Russia. It is without question. And if you are backing Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you are backing a fascist invading a democratic country. You don't have to like Zelensky. Personally, I think he's doing a great job at the moment. But you you do have to support democracy. And as you say, Lithuania, Estonia, you know, the people of Belarus. Belarus is often considered the last dictatorship in Europe. Belarus has aligned itself to Putin. The, the pieces line up pretty clearly here. This is not a case of the fog of war or areas of grey. This is democracy 
versus totalitarianism. And there are totalitarians, Putin and Belarus, and then there is democracy. Even China is starting to say, hmm, yeah, China we was, think war's bad. Yeah, we think war was bad and we think invading countries is bad. These are these were said by China today, which is very interesting. But I just want to bring everyone, I want to bring this closer to home when we talk about the international far right and its love of Vladimir Putin. From March 2017, can you guess who said this? He is very patriotic towards his country. The people love him. He is doing so well for the country. So many Australians here want that leadership here in Australia. Pauline Hanson. She did in March 2017, praising the murderous dictator of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin, who's just invaded a sovereign liberal democratic country. Thank you, Pauline. When people tell you who they are, believe them. On that note, we're going to move on because this is already an extended episode of the week on Wednesday. There's been lots going on. And obviously when there is a geopolitical uh, war like this, it's uh, it's going to be a long episode. But there's also, uh, you know, some terrible news coming out of um, southeastern Queensland and northern New South Wales. Ben, I'm just I'm just going to talk through the stats on this very quickly. Nine people have died in Queensland. There have been uh, there are thirty thousand properties without power in southeastern Queensland. The waters may not recede for a week in some places. Uh, 40,000 insurance claims have been lodged in Brisbane so far. The imagery coming out of Queensland uh, is obviously very disturbing. Floodwaters as high as the top of McDonald's signs, and I mean those big ones on the poles, Um, but also great images and stories of bravery and courage of people volunteering and helping each other and, and keeping the floodwaters back. Some of that footage of somebody wrote, God bless the engineers because they had managed to build a dike in the middle of a street that had saved a country town. Like just magnificent, um, truly uh, Australian acts of courage and community that have, that have happened in Queensland. Oh, it's extraordinary. So um, Lismore, a town in New South yeah. Wales where I've spent a lot of time, um, so, it absolutely flooded, extraordinary pictures. Janelle Safin, who's the Labor MP for Lismore, lost her house yeah. and had to be evacuated from by boat. The next day she was back at it um, on the front lines helping out with emergency services. I do want to mention that two people – have also died in Lismore as well. So the death toll from the floods between Queensland and New South Wales has reached 10, is my understanding, at this point. And, of course, you know, it's an absolute tragedy and and, and we do wish all the very best to the families and communities who've, who've suffered this loss because it's one thing to lose property, it's another thing to lose a loved one. Absolutely. Um, I put out uh, something on Twitter earlier that was about the farms that have uh, really suffered in this, like people losing livestock, livestock literally being washed away. But not only that, the destruction to holding pens and warehouses and sheds and machinery, like there are some farmers who are saying they won't be able to continue financially because this isn't the only disaster they've been beset with over the past few years. And it like there is a political issue here, and that political issue is around the disaster preparedness fund that Scott Morrison announced during the bushfires that was going to fund the recoveries of all these communities. And that was announced in 2019. Well, now it's 2022, and not a cent of that four billion four billion dollar fund has been spent. Yeah. In fact, it's been sitting there 
on the books for so long, it has managed to raise $800 million worth of interest, interest because it's been inactive, not rebuilding communities, not investing in disaster mitigation, not putting up levees or dikes or, you know, or any of the things that could help these communities. And the rage is coming from these communities about, well, where is the government? Where is the preparedness? And, Ben, what did Peter Dutton do in the context of the floods? So Peter Dutton, senior cabinet minister in the Morrison government, who has signed off on billions of dollars of expenditure to private corporations and contractors. Who holds a seat in southeast Queensland. Who holds a seat in southeast Queensland started a GoFundMe page. And I believe I believe he chipped in two grand or two and a half grand of his own money. Two and a half. Now, a minister, a cabinet minister, I think he's minister for defence at the moment, may we all pray for peace, uh, he'd be on around 400000 a year uh, and he'd have $150,000 in communication budget and he'd have a fairly substantial electorate allowance on top of that. And of course, we know that he gets his whatever it is, four hundred dollars a day or three hundred dollars a day to uh, go to Canberra and to be out of the electorate and all the rest of it. So I'm not trying to say you know he should have given more, but two and a half grand in that context is not as large a sum as it might be for many people to give. But more to the point, Van. More to the point, he's a cabinet minister who has access to billions of dollars. Like the $4 billion. Specifically for disaster relief that I saw them say is is a fund of last resort. A fund of last resort. Well, I'm sorry. When I last spoke about this on Sunday, eight people had died. It's now Wednesday. Ten people have died. 30,000 homes without power in Queensland. 20,000 in the Northern Rivers, just the Northern Rivers part of New South Wales. Oh, and a deluge going down the coast. like it's. We know there's going to be tens of thousands of properties flooded right across New South Wales. When do we get to last resort? How, how many people have to die before Peter Dutton walks into the Cabinet room and demands that Scott Morrison and Bridget McKenzie, who, as I understand it, is the minister responsible, Oh, that couldn't let possibly that, go wrong. Let Sports that money, rods, Bridget. Let that money be spent helping the communities and the people and the families who've lost everything and in some cases lost their lives. When is it last resort, Peter? Like, mate, you're the defence minister. Where do you draw the line? Because if, if this is how he approaches his ministerial responsibility... He's abandoning the people of his electorate. If he approaches his ministerial responsibility in this way, it's no wonder we're not going to have submarines for 10 years. It's no wonder we've wasted billions on tanks that we don't need and bits of machinery that don't work because he refuses to do his job properly. They're just not up to it, Van. No, they're they're not not up to it. They're not up to it. I mean, this is the thing. And these are people who go to their electorates whenever the election comes around and he'll do it again and go and and insist that he's standing up for his community. Peter Dutton will tell the people in Dixon in his seat... (laughs) That he's, that he's just a local boy doing his best by the people who live there and he will get his photo taken with, you know, Bob who runs Small Business X and whatever and, you know, he'll do an ad for the local car yard and the rest of it and be like, oh, yeah, you know, bringing jobs and opportunity and everything to the local area. And when the local area is underwater, when southeast Queensland is literally, there are cows that are washing up 
on beaches, on roofs, because entire dairy farms have been washed away. The dairy farmers whose cows have survived are now in the situation where they have no power to milk them. Cows are probably going to get mastitis, like enormous amounts of economic corruption going on. But Peter Dutton will tell you that he's standing up for the local community because he's put $2,500 into a GoFundMe. How, like, what is that? I just, it, it boggles my mind. And Morrison was asked about this. I don't know if you saw this or not. Uh, oh, yeah, I saw this. Yeah, but you okay. talk about it because I'll just start screaming. Morrison was asked about this by a journalist who seemed quite incredulous, not as angry about it as us, but quite incredulous about it too. And Morrison said, well, you know, Peter's trying to help out his community and good on him and I don't understand why people have a problem with it. And it's like, mate, because you don't understand your job. You don't understand the role of government. You don't understand that you're elected to help people, that to govern the Commonwealth, to to use the resources of the Commonwealth for the common good of the common people, not to siphon off the liberal donors who don't, whose companies don't have any assets and don't have any staff, but get $1.6 billion from Peter Dutton's departments. That's not the job, Scott. That's not the job. The job is not to do that and then chuck a $2,000 check in the kitty when somebody's passing the hat around. That's not the job. The job is to put in place structural benefits for the common people of the Commonwealth of Australia. And Given this bloke doesn't seem to get that, I don't understand how anyone can possibly consider voting for him in 12 weeks' time or whenever the election will be because, frankly, he doesn't get it. Not only is he not up to the job, he doesn't even understand it. The guy gets sent the position description every day, I'm sure, and just either can't read it, doesn't read it, or doesn't care. I'm sorry. It makes me just, you know, I've grown up in regional Victoria, as you know, and we had floods and we had fires and we had all those things. And you see people, you see communities come together, you see people who chip in, who do everything, who, who cook, who clean, who, you know, repair fences and look after the animals and look after the kids. And you see communities come together to do everything they can. And it's that moment when government steps in to help that makes the big difference, that tips it over the edge from, are we going to get through this? Can we survive long enough to get through this to we know we're going to be okay? That's what I remember the as a kid. The role of government is to have a plan, an actual plan. I think one of the reasons why the Liberals always run with the word plan is because they don't actually have one but know that it's quite important. Like it's a form of projection. Like we've got a plan. We've got a jobs plan. We've got this plan. That's the plan like- never eventuates. You know, northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland are literally underwater and they're running a GoFundMe. That's not a plan. That's a white flag. That's an admission that you do not know what your job is and you don't care. We have a buy me a coffee. We have a we have an online fundraising platform that we use to raise money to help us promote the week on Wednesday. We do that because it's a podcast. We are not the Commonwealth of Australia. We are not levying a tax on everyone. And it's entirely <laughs> vo- it's entirely voluntary. If you like the and product, nobody's, we- and nobody's life is dependent on it. No. This is not, you know, go fund me. I, I got no problem with people using online fundraising platforms. Go for it. You want to raise money for whatever cause you want, good on you. Carnival, short film. Sure. But the idea, and this is an Americanized idea that comes out of a place where there is no universal health care, there is no universal access to education, where people use these platforms to crowdfund for medical bills that would otherwise, in a normal Western democracy, be paid for by the state. This is where this idea comes from. 
And that's what Peter Dutton is doing. And it's insidious. It's insidious. And it's a corruption of Australian values. And for that man to hold the defence ministry is frankly a betrayal of every Australian who has served and who every Australian who holds Australian values. And that is we stand together and the Commonwealth is the people. We have to talk about some good news because otherwise I'm going to have an aneurysm and then I've got to go and use our universal healthcare system. We've really had a big week in this house, <laughs> let me tell you. I mean, because Ben and I are like this all the time. Like you're just sitting in on the chats that we have constantly and it's been a pretty stressful week. Yeah, it's um, been pretty So fun. I've got some good news. Let's have the good news. Yeah, look, it, it's a start. I like this news. Yep. It's got to do with Guinness beer. Of yep. course, the national beer of Ireland uh, you know, the, the mother country of the, not the bottom part of my family, but my the other goodness. part. It's about Guinness. My goodness, it's about Guinness. Uh, the family mythology being that, it, and apparently this has been proven by science, if you have 150 Guinnesses in a day, you'll meet all your nutritional requirements. You'll also end up having your life supported by a machine, but it's possible. Um, Guinness have embraced regenerative agriculture, which I've talked about on the show before. Yay. Regenerative agriculture is about understanding that soil captures carbon. And there are things that we can do in the way that we farm, which is not about obliterating every other form of life. That's about using like an ecological conception of how things grow in an ecosystem as opposed to just, you know, monocropping. I can't remember what it's called, mono, monoculture. monoculture. Um, so Guinness have sponsored 40 barley farms in Ireland, barley, of course, being the essential ingredient of Guinness, to switch to regenerative agriculture practices as a means of closing the loop and making sure that from from agriculture there will be carbon capture as a way of neutralising, not only neutralising their carbon output but also of encouraging like better land use and the integration of preservation of wildlife and better outcomes for farmers and better improved soil quality and a minimisation of the use of pesticides. That's great news. So it's not only that Guinness can meet all your nutritional needs, but the more of it you drink, the better it is for the planet. So I just want to make clear we have received no consideration from Guinness. I don't even this. drink alcohol, but there you go. And like, I, and I can't a, drink beer anymore anyway. <laughs> as an absolutely staunch teetotaler, can I just say, Guinness, you make a product I don't use, but I like what you're doing with it. That's good news. That's great news. Look, this has been an extra long episode of the week on Wednesday, as I said. We have had so much to talk about. There's been so much going on. And, you know, Van, these episodes would not be possible if it were not for the support of our listeners and our supporters. This podcast will always be free to listen to, always be free to download, and that's partly because there are people who are able and willing to put in some To make money. a voluntary contribution to its continued operation because we do a podcast, we don't prevent <laughs> floods. That's right. And we will, and so we want to give a shout out to our cadre supporters. These are people chipping in $20 a month uh, and I'm going to r- rattle them off. Leona Gibbons, someone at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman. I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naronga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash at Red, White, Blue, Lou, Kyle, uh, sorry, Kylie Phillips, Diana Blyton. Uh, and Van, our extending the reach supporters, these are people who chip in $10 uh, 
uh, uh, $10 a month. Uh, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trina, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, and K2E, Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, uh, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Daniel Slavin, at the Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Bowman, Sandy Bomegart, at not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Pauline Bate, Erica Pazuti, Megan Weckart, and Moira Louise Walker. That's a lot of people. The list grows every week, Van. We love it. We love it. We absolutely love it. So huge, huge thank you to all those people. And a huge congratulations to the people who have either got on our supporter page and told us that they've joined the union uh, or jumped on Facebook to tell us that or jumped on Twitter to tell us that or sent us an email about that. Uh, it's so great to hear those stories. Uh, AustralianUnions.org.au slash WOW, W-O-W, to join your union. Also, a big shout-out to the work that's being done with On The Job, the podcast of Australian Unions. Yay. Our good friends, Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, doing some really great work there, talking with workers about what's going on in the workplace. Check out that. That comes out every Monday. I think you can catch that. Uh, and, of course, don't forget to get Van's book, q and On and On. We may even do a special on some of this stuff, Van. I think there's some real interest in not just what's in the book, but what's going on now with Ukraine and Putin's war and really the the reinvigoration of democracy, right? So maybe we'll do a special episode. Let yeah. us know if you'd like to hear a special episode about that issue. Uh, and, of course, don't forget International Women's Day next week, uh, as we talked about at the start of the episode. Some major, major issues uh, can f- that can be addressed. We know there are solutions. So... That's the week on Wednesday for this week. Huge episode. Please like, share, comment. Let us know. If you get this and you go, this episode was too long, let us know. We always can on your feedback. Uh, Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. I think you're the best.